Hello and welcome to Foster Source. Thanks so much for joining us today. This is what would my therapist say? Don't we all wish we knew? Uh, therapy is a service we started providing at Foster Source at the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, one of the counties called us and said, look, we've got a foster mom. We don't know if she's going to make it and we don't have anywhere for these kids to go. We said, okay, let's have her speak with a therapist. She met with the therapist. She was the first person we ever matched. It's now 18 months later and she is adopting those two children. This program works and it helps. Obviously, we all know the better we're taking care of ourselves, the better we can take care of these children. In the meantime, we have probably, Dan, help me out if you know off the top of your head, we've probably sponsored between 150 and 200 foster parents um, with therapy. I think we have maybe 120 that are still actively using our therapy. Um, we'll get into different options that you have today, um, but we are thrilled to welcome Lottie Grimes and Dave Weiner. They are both therapists. They'll tell you a little bit about themselves, but we asked them to do this class to help us understand really what your journey through therapy could look like. It's a lot different than laying on the couch and telling them how this makes us feel. Um, this is not our grandmother's therapy. It's, it's different and it's really important and helpful. Uh, we welcome your questions. So please submit your questions in the chat. And yeah, thank you. Thank you, Dave and Lottie. I was thrilled to have you and take it away. Okay, hi everyone. Uh, Renee, I guess I start sharing my screen now. Perfect. Okay. Hi, everyone. Yeah, like uh, Renee said, this is what would my therapist say? Uh, I'm Dave Weiner, and I'm going to actually let Lottie introduce herself first. Sure. Hi, uh, my name is Lottie Grimes. Yeah, so I'm a, a licensed professional counselor. I've been working with foster families in various capacities for, it's almost 25 years now. Um, started out working with foster kids and transitioned to doing family work. And now I do primarily counseling with Renee and Foster Source with foster parents. And I'm Dave, I'm also a therapist. Uh, I, as Renee said, uh, am a former foster parent. And I think what's humbling and helpful for me is to admit, uh, you know, on paper, I'm a trauma and grief therapist. My wife is a teacher. So on paper, we look like we should be able to handle challenging stuff. And I will have to admit, we, we have had to terminate a placement. Uh, so I have tremendous respect for what it takes to be a foster parent, the challenges, the joys, and that uh, sometimes it's important to reach out for help. And that's what brings Lottie and myself uh, here today to talk about reaching out for help. Hey, Dave, can I just jump in for a second? I realize now that I shared that story of the first foster parent um, we sponsored with therapy. I don't want 
folks to understand that as if you get therapy, you will continue fostering. <laughs> that is that is not the point of therapy what, whatsoever. That just happened to be what happened with that first um, foster parent. But this is really, therapy helps you decide what is best. Is it, is it best to stick it out or is it best to, to go in a different direction? So apologies if anyone felt uh, offended or felt pressure that they would have to maintain placement. That is, that is not the intention. And we will reiterate that later on. Um, but I wanna just go through this agenda very, very quickly. It looks like a long agenda. I promise it's not as overwhelming as it might look on paper. But we wanna talk first just a bit about fitting therapy into your schedule. You're all busy people. Uh, and there are, as Renee mentioned, multiple ways to reach out for support. We wanna talk about the ways that Foster Source does offer to do that. Then we wanna spend some time dispelling the myths about therapy. We wanna talk about what to expect in therapy before and during. We wanna invite you to think about what you need out of therapy and then how to get the most out of it once you have decided to reach out. We wanna reiterate why your mental health is so important for you, for your families. And then we're gonna take a little bit of a left turn, assuming there's time. Uh, and we wanna talk about what's going on in your child's brain and your brain. We're not gonna get into really the deep neuroscience of it, even though Lottie and I could really geek out about that kind of stuff. We're gonna keep it fairly top level, but it's really important and helpful to know what's going on. And then we'll transition into talking about, okay, how do you address what's going on? We could probably talk for weeks and weeks about that particular slide, but we'll just share some of the important, uh, the, kind of the top level, how you, can, how you can address both what's going on in your brain and in your child's brain. We wanna just list a few of our favorite resources and then as Renee mentioned, we also offer uh, equine assisted learning programs. Uh, and we thought we would highlight those because they are uh, a type of mental health support and they're re a really unique offering uh, that we were, we're grateful uh, that we can offer through Foster Source. And so with that, I'll turn it over to Lottie to talk about fitting therapy into your schedule. So I would say that probably Dave and my favorite way to provide therapy is in person. Um, but these days it's just not always possible. And it's also really helpful to have other options available. Um, but again, in-person in meetings are sort of the most traditional way to engage with a therapist. Um, these days, a lot of the counseling platforms and I believe better health is or better better help is among those Renee you can correct me if I'm wrong that offers their own video yep. platform okay right so a lot of times uh, you can do that you know just scheduling with a therapist and meeting online many therapists use doxy or the HIPAA compliant zoom platform as well there's also the option for phone calls these days. Um, I'm, I'm not sure that, sorry, my cat is 
messing with my computer. I'm not sure that insurance covers telephone um, uh, counseling, but the foster source certainly does. And I think that is one of the platforms that BetterHelp um, uses. And then there's also the option of text and or instant messaging, which is more of an um, asynchronous type of help. So speaking of that, there are um, benefits to the synchronous types of meetings as opposed to the asynchronous types. One of the things that a lot of folks like about asynchronous, so more like texting back and forth, is the option to ask your therapist, hey, I have this situation coming up, what are your thoughts about this? Or this thing happened just five minutes ago, can you give me your thoughts? Or I'm kind of struggling with this. And it, there's no, um, there's, it's not necessary to spend time setting up an appointment and figuring out how to work that into your schedule. The other thing that a lot of folks like about it is that it, there's kind of a record of what is going on. So it can be referred to at a later time. Um, can, can I just add one quick thing? Uh, in, addition, in addition to these ways to fit therapy in your schedule, I just think it's important to, to recognize if you are in a mental health crisis, there is another important way, which is either 911 or the Denver Metro crisis line, which is a 24 seven uh, staffed by uh, crisis counselors, always available to you. Most therapists who you're gonna work with don't answer their phone 24 seven, which is why it's important to know that there is a crisis line uh, available at no cost. Yeah. And most therapists offer a variety of these. So even if I am working with someone in person, if they have something going on, I'll, I'll get a text from someone and as soon as I can, I can respond. Uh, it's just not our primary way of meeting. Yeah. Um, you guys want me to talk about this? Yeah, I was just gonna say, Renee can talk a little bit more about BetterHelp. Yeah, so we have a couple of different options um, at Foster Source. Like I said, you can either be placed in our under our BetterHelp membership, which allows you to see a therapist online, either by phone call, video, um, texting, or instant message. There are Spanish-speaking therapists, there are young therapists, there are old therapists, there are LGBTQ therapists, there are straight therapists, there are faith-based uh, therapists, non-faith-based therapists. Um, there are therapists specialized in trauma and grief and stress, which is what most foster parents present with. Um, so you fill out your form and you make all of your selections and they match you. Another great thing about BetterHelp is that if this isn't a good fit, it is literally one click of the button and you can rematch with somebody else. There's no awkward conversation, nothing. And I was just telling Lottie the other day, like, oh, I don't know if I could ever do that. And she was like, actually, therapists love it when you do that because mm -hmm. they know they're like, they're proud of you, right, Lottie? Because they, they know that you're doing the right thing to get yourself yeah. the help that you need. Yeah. Advocating for yourself, kind of, you know, listening to what your gut says. Those are all really important things. Therapists and you promise that. that the therapist won't take it personally. Nope. And if they okay. do. Okay. <laughs> That's more reason not to be working with them. There you go. Okay. We also have at Foster Source about six 
between six and eight specialized therapists that we know and love. Dave and Lottie are two of them. We have these folks that when we first started this program, these are the folks we referred to until they were all full and couldn't take anyone else. And, and then we thought, okay, we have to figure this out. And that's why we, we went under partnership with BetterHelp. We save, quote unquote, save. Listen, let me be honest. Everybody wants to be with Dave and Lottie. Everybody wants to be with, <laughs> with our specialized therapist. We kind of, quote unquote, save them for extra sensitive cases. Um, and we have extra sensitive cases. I don't really want to bring up any, any topic, but there, there are definitely cases where they need in person or they need immediate, like this afternoon. Um, and those are the folks that we then, um, refer over to our specialized therapists. Um, there is no cost to you. Uh, for for your mental health services through Foster Source, BetterHelp does not accept any insurance, and you don't need any insurance. It's you don't even enter any payment information, so that's it's quick and easy. Dave and Lottie on our other therapists bill Foster Source directly, and we um, pay them. There's no money trans, you know, changing hands with the, with you, the client. Um, some foster parents, after seeing them for a while and deciding they want to continue to see, will inquire with their health insurance. Hey, is this covered? Can I just pay my copay? Um, we don't require that. But of course, anything that helps us save a lot, a little bit of money is great because then we can serve more parents. Um, but it is definitely not a requirement. Um, we don't know anything about what you're being seen for, um, even if how many times you're seen, or if you didn't show up, we, we, we just, that's none of our business and we don't hear about it. Um, Dave and Lottie will talk a little bit later about confidentiality and things that would require them to report something, but it's very, very minimal. And I think we all know as mandatory reporters, what those things right. would be. Um, Dave and Lottie uh, also, our founders of Groundwork Ranch, which if somebody could put that in the chat, groundworkranch.org, that is the equine assisted learning program. They'll tell you a little bit about that later as well. There is no cost to you for that. That is also sponsored by Foster Source. I think I covered everything, but feel free to put questions in the chat and happy to help. Renee, one thing I want to add or just sort of emphasize from what you were just saying, thank you for bringing that up. Um, because you do, we do not bill through insurance, there are no, um, there's no risk of somebody having to review the records to sort of justify the use of therapy. That is one of the drawbacks of um, covering in, you know, utilizing insurance benefits is that Dave and I have to, or any therapist, using insurance has to give a diagnosis. That's I'm, what I thought, right? I, you have to yeah. do a diagnosis. I don't yeah. diagnose my foster parents. <laughs> and most, you know, most people who are seeking out therapy don't really don't have a diagnosable mental illness. It is, you know, it's much more vague than that. So that I think is one of the frustrations that comes with um, billing through insurance. And one of the reasons this program is so special, uh, there's, there's no need to justify, um, basically we, when someone, we, we give them a diagnosis and then we have to 
continually sort of justify that they yeah. are working on their mental illness, yeah. but they're getting better, but they're not better yet. Right. Because, right. We don't have and to mess with any of that. None of that. I think and besides all of us having foster parent itis, um, there's probably <laughs> nothing else that, yeah. And it's just, when we, when we surveyed initially our first few participants and asked them, would you have sought mental health support without this program? Almost everybody said no for various reasons. They don't know where to start. Like, what do you do? Oh, uh, you know, this is going to make me sound old, but open the phone book. Right. And just kind of point and try someone. Um, So and we don't have time. And that's why I think this is so great, especially having some options to do some virtual. Um, And I have to say that I saw my therapist for years in person. And when COVID hit and I had to see her virtual, I thought this is this is not going to work. This is going to feel weird. It, it didn't for me. It took maybe a session or two. And then we were yeah. right back into our, our normal groove. Yeah. A lot of people worry about that. And I did myself, um, but it does seem to sort of figure itself out after a session or two. So please let us know if you have any questions um, as we're going along, but we'll try to stop and remind, uh, remind you of that as we go. And actually, here's the first time we're going to remind you of that. We want this to be as uh, interactive as possible since we're not all in the same room. We all wish we could be in the same room, but here we are on Zoom. Uh, And as Renee said, we unfortunately don't have the Q&A feature available, but we want to talk about how people think about therapy. But before we share our experiences and what what we have learned in our careers, we want to ask you if you're comfortable to share. You can do this anonymously by sharing directly with Renee. Yep, share directly to me or just put it in the chat. We're not going to name anybody's names anyway in the chat. When you think about therapy, what comes up for you? What images, thoughts, feelings, hesitations, um, stereotypes, concerns? We want to just pause here for a moment and let you answer what, what comes up, whether you have experience in therapy or you're reluctant to engage in therapy because of what's coming up. We just wanna normalize all of that. So please feel free to share whatever you're comfortable. Apparently Renee still thinks you lay on a couch or thought that until recently. <laughs> I would like to, I really would, so comfortable. Yeah, we had foster parents laying on a couch in therapy, guarantee they'd be asleep. <laughs> All right, people are saying, tell me about your relationship with your parents. Um, Someone says, I I like this, vulnerability, weakness, mind games. That is so valid. Um, It's a process. Absolutely. It's a process. We can't go in and quote unquote solve it day one. Someone says, I did therapy before and didn't feel a connection. So I'm hesitant to try it again. Oh my gosh. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm going to add my own here because this was what I had fears of. I have to dig everything up from my childhood. We got to start in 1971 and go through every single thing, right? Right. <laughs> right. I think these are common, Very common common hesitations. What what would you say? Absolutely. Every single one of those is a very common hesitation, a common stereotype, misconception. And to be honest, 
Hollywood hasn't helped very much no. in the way it portrays both therapists and people who seek out therapy. Uh, and so we have, you all come by those thoughts and feelings very rightfully. It's, yeah. it's what's been out there for a long time. Um, Let me share what, a couple more, if you don't mind, sorry. Uh, my wife and I have been doing continuous counseling for the last two years. She's on one week and I'm on the next week. Then the third week we're together. My biggest challenge was finding a counselor who was relatable. Yeah. yeah. I used to have a negative outlook, but after the death of my mom and sister, I went through grief counseling and wow, my outlook changed. I needed support with one of my placements and it was so helpful. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. I think that finding someone who's relatable is so important. Mm -hmm. I almost feel like it's kind of like a hairdresser, right? You gotta, you gotta find your person. <laughs> Dave, I don't know if you have that issue as much, but you Not gotta long time. <laughs> you gotta find your person, right? That you really there is a major trust component in therapy. If there's anywhere to be vulnerable, it's in therapy. Yeah. We'll talk about this a little bit more in a, in a couple of moments, but the relationship between the therapist and the client. And when I say that, I, I mean sort of that relatability and that sort of um, back and forth that feels really comfortable is definitely the most important sort of predictor of success in therapy. And that's why Renee, when you were talking about, you know, moving on from someone that you don't feel comfortable with, any good therapist is gonna encourage that because that is going to make the biggest difference in, in sort of the outcome. Can I tell you one thing that on my first session, um, my therapist told me that I was like, whatever. She, she's, she said, I can't, I'm not gonna be your Facebook friend. Um, we're not friends. If I see you in public, I'm going to act like I don't see you unless you come up to me Mm -hmm. You know, and I really had trouble at not the Facebook part, obviously, but I really had trouble accepting that because I adore her. She's a really great person. And I know we would be fantastic friends, Yeah, but yeah. I have to tell myself the gift from her is what I learn. And I have to, this is going to sound so corny, but I have to kind of grieve the loss of that friendship, what could have been a friendship to get the help. Is that dorky? Do you no. guys have your clients over for, for cocktail parties? No. <laughs> no. But, but it's, but we love them. Exactly. I was just going to say it, at the same time, it, it is a very intimate relationship that is formed emotionally intimate. It's also a one-sided, it can feel one-sided sometimes different therapists have different philosophies about how much they disclose about themselves. Um, but in general, they're going to know a lot more about you than you know about them. Um, and so it can definitely feel different than a friendship. And I, I think I'm getting ahead of, of myself because we're going to talk a little bit more about that in okay. just a moment. Okay, good. Just a couple extra thoughts that have come in. Um, someone said, my first counselor was 45 years older and I had to translate slang the entire time. And that I did receive counseling as much as I translated nearly everything. And then someone says, 
I've been to therapy. I didn't have a good connection with my first therapist. I did have the option to choose a different one. And I have finally found a therapist I have a good connection with. So it's a process to find what, and, and different therapists have, have different approaches. And I know we'll, we'll get to that as well. I've told you guys what I think of therapists giving quote unquote homework, but these are kind of the questions that you ask when the first session to see if you think it's going to be a good fit. Absolutely. What we wanted to do, thank you all for sharing all that, that you, you actually are a couple steps ahead of us uh, in, in sharing a lot of those specific uh, thoughts. But we wanted to take a minute to dispel some of the common myths. Some have already been mentioned uh, that we hear about therapy or, and, and, and that a lot of clients come to us assuming about therapy. Um, the first one is, and these are not necessarily in order of... Uh, of occurrence or frequency. But one of the myths that a lot of people have is that therapy is only for people in crisis. Hey, I'm fine. I don't need therapy. I can handle this. And the reality is that therapy can be helpful anytime you're dealing with something challenging. Almost by definition, foster parenting fits that category. You are dealing with something that is challenging rewarding, but also challenging. And it doesn't have to be a crisis moment to reach out for support. In fact, I would argue that the best time to reach out for support is long before you reach the crisis point. Hey, things are going okay. I want to get them better, or I just need to talk through what I'm feeling. I'm not in a crisis right now, and I want to stay out of a crisis. Absolutely. Our goal at Foster Source is congratulations, you're certified. Here's the link to your therapist. Get to know him or her now, so that when you are in crisis, you're not starting from scratch. Right. That's not to, that's not to suggest that every single foster parent will reach a mental health crisis or that every <laughs> right. mental health crisis is about foster parenting. For it's sure. Have mental health needs that have nothing to do with foster parenting. Absolutely. We'll talk about that. The next myth that we want to dispel is that therapy is for people who don't have friends to talk with. Renee and, and Lottie actually already talked uh, about this, but talking with a therapist is different than talking with a friend. I mentioned some of the qualities of the relationship that are going to feel friendly, but not a friendship. Um, A therapist is going to maybe challenge you in ways that a, a, a loyal, caring friend might not challenge you, and will also not judge you the way that some acquaintances might judge you, or have an agenda or, or know what's best for you, or want to give advice. I'm kind of, again, getting ahead of myself here. We'll talk a little bit more about that with some other myths. Um, but it is wonderful to have a therapist in addition to, not instead of, or because you don't have friends to talk with. A good therapist will say, talk to your friends, have a social support network around you. That's critical for foster parenting is to have that support just one of the beautiful things that Foster Source offers. And I would add on top of that, Dave, really quickly, um, helping clients understand what it is that they get out of therapy as you're going through the process helps them figure out how to get that after therapy is over in their social circle. What can I say? How can what can I say to someone um, that will let them know exactly what I need? and give them the space to give that to me 
And they look a lot of my clients, and I'm sure yours too, learn that through our interactions, how to ask for what you need and, and give what is best for your, your friends as well. But, um, I think that's pretty important. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Here's one we heard in the chat already. The therapist will bring up and make me talk about things I don't want to talk about. Tell, or, or, or I don't even know, I don't remember. Tell me about your potty training or, you know, t- tell me how you, how you felt when your first animal died. Uh, first of all, you're not, no one's gonna make you talk about things and you don't have to talk about what you don't wanna talk about. Uh, different therapists, as Renee mentioned, have different approaches. Some do have an approach where they believe that it's important to talk in length about the, the depth of your childhood experiences or past um, developmental experiences. Um, other therapists pretty much say, we don't need to talk about that. Let's talk about the future. These are just different theoretical approaches. Uh, but it's also important, I think, to, to be honest, uh, with ourselves that the more vulnerable you're willing to be, the more helpful therapy is probably going to be for you. If you want to keep the conversation up here, you could still get stuff out of it. And it's a nice place uh, to get things off your chest. Sure. And if you're willing to maybe take a little bit of a deeper dive, open up a little bit more, take a little bit of the armor off, um, Again, that gets back to, do you feel safe? Do you feel like the relationship is a, is a comfortable one where you can be vulnerable uh, without being judged or somehow hurt by that vulnerability? Uh, bottom line is you talk about what you wanna talk about and you accept that your therapist might push and poke a little bit. You always decide how much you wanna yeah. uh, open up. Yeah. If you don't mind, I'm going to share this comment. Someone says, it took me a while to find a therapist I felt comfortable with. I wanted to have a therapist that I could talk to regularly when issues arise, but I needed to clearly articulate that to my therapist. Some of the better help therapists kept asking what my quote unquote goal was. And one outright told me she only works with folks who have a goal. It took me a while to figure out how to articulate that my goal was to have someone I already had a relationship with that I can connect with when I feel I need to. Yeah. That's really important. Yeah. Very what a important. Great example. Yeah. Dave and I were actually talking about this a few days ago when we were kind of talking about some of the ways to get the most out of therapy. And what I have found with a, a lot of the foster families I have worked with is there really isn't a a, a goal that I could, that anybody could probably easily identify or put into some nice package. A lot of times it's just about feeling better afterwards. Right. right. And I guess I, I would offer just a slight addendum to that idea, which is it's very likely that your foster parenting journey has or will at some point bring up something from your past, something traumatic, something stressful, something that even despite maybe your best efforts and your desires impacts how you feel yeah. today and maybe even how you parent today. Yep. And so it is possible that you'll reach a point in your therapeutic relationship where you do have a goal of 
hey, I never really fully grieved when such and such happened. Yeah. Or I never really fully processed what it was like to experience that traumatic event. And then that becomes a little bit of a goal for a session or four right. sessions or working through something in service of how can I show up in my life today in the best way I can be my best. Yeah. I like this comment. Someone says, I feel like counseling is a healthy boundary for, or counseling is a healthy boundary for myself. There are things that are not appropriate to share with friends or family or even safe to share. And isn't that the truth with foster parenting? No one understands. Yeah. Counseling is my safe place. There is ne not necessarily a goal. Hold on, I got to scroll. Other than having a healthy place to reflect and reset. Absolutely. Really well said. Absolutely, I agree. And and on that note, there are times when we when if we share something very difficult with someone even if they have the biggest heart and want to do the right thing, um, they can, there can actually be some re-traumatization based on how the reaction, uh, how that interaction goes. Uh, so when we talk about feeling safe with your therapist, it's not just that would be nice. Not only is it the biggest predictor of you know, good outcomes, but it also, um, helps create a place uh, in the relationship where it is completely safe to talk about something. And if we don't feel really safe when we're talking about something difficult, that can um, keep us kind of stuck. And, and I'll mention something from my own experience. I, I, I'm imagining that a lot of you out there can, can relate to this. As a foster parent, there were times when I was not so wild about the child in my home or not so wild about the behavior of the child in my home. And that can sort of feel shameful to admit to, um, you know, someone who thinks that, oh, you must have such a big heart because you're a foster parent. And oh my gosh, you're an angel, you're a saint. And then when you come at them with, actually, can I tell you about, oh my gosh, I'm gritting my teeth right now. It's that's an example of something that maybe you can talk with a therapist about that maybe you can't talk with a friend about. Yeah, we'll move on since we have so much to cover, but people are very much resonating with that. Very much resonating. Here, here's, uh, here's another myth that I'll have to meet weekly for a long period of time in order to, for therapy to be helpful. I think we can thank Woody Allen for this one because he created, you know, Hollywood created this idea of, I'm gonna sit on the couch uh, or lie down on the couch um, twice a week for seven years talking about my mother. Hey, if that's helpful, great, do it. But that's not necessarily how therapy is going to work. We have probably the majority of clients come to therapy weekly or every other week or whatever, whatever you and your therapist decide is the right amount for a matter of months, whether that's three months or eight months. Um, sure, you're you might have value, you might see value in continuing it for a long time, but that's certainly not the requirement, the expectation, or the only way it's gonna be helpful. With a good relationship with the therapist, I'm always optimistic that you'll begin seeing benefit within a couple weeks. If you're doing your hard work and you're talking about good stuff and, and you have that relationship, it's not gonna take 
six months or a year or two years before you even begin to see a, a benefit of going. I think that's important to remember. Lottie, you wanna take over? Sure, yeah. So the therapist will have to report what we talk about to my child's caseworker. Um, with only a few exceptions, everything you and your therapist talk about stays between you and your therapist. All foster parents are mandatory reporters as are all therapists. So you probably have a pretty good understanding that there are certain times when um, information needs to be shared. The, the thing that Dave and I really wanna kind of clarify is that having dark thoughts about, um, I'm, I'm so stressed, I wish, like sometimes I just wish I were dead or um, I can't do this anymore. Um, I thought about driving off a cliff or something like that. Those thoughts are not suicidal thoughts and we don't have to go make some sort of formal report about those kinds of things. Just about everybody has these kind of darker thoughts and therapy is an excellent place to share them because sitting with those feelings alone is very, can be terrifying. Um, and so that's the one thing that I think is the most important about this, or one of the things that's very important. The other thing is that, you know, caseworkers, foster source, um, GALs, nobody has the right to any of the information that we talk about with our clients. Uh, that's again, one of the really big benefits of working with foster source using this service. Um, so other than those, a few of those um, situations where there's some sort of plan for hurting someone or hurting themselves, um, the other ones are elder, treat, mistreatment of elders or you know, suspected child abuse. Any, did I get everything on that, Dave? I think you did, yeah. Okay. All right, the therapist will try to talk me out of my experiences, thoughts, or feelings, or will try to get me to continue fostering or stop fostering. Uh, a good therapist is not gonna have any dog in this fight. Um, there's not ever, there should not be any sort of an attempt to sway your opinions about what you're doing. It's very, you know, we need to be very respectful of your experience. Um, a good therapist will not impose their own beliefs, values, or judgments. They might offer different perspectives or ways of thinking about something, but um, in general, it's, it's going to be exploring your experience and helping you come to your own conclusions or decisions, and then validating your experience following those decisions. Lottie actually just talked about this one. I won't be able to talk honestly about darker thoughts without triggering some kind of formal response. Um, oh. I think Lottie said everything that I would wanna say to that. Um, so I'll move on. At the top of our meeting today, Renee kind of jokingly said that therapy isn't just about how does that make you feel? Um, and then the therapist is gonna sit back and you know stroke my beard and, and, and nod while, while you talk about feelings. Um, for the most part, therapy is far more collaborative than that cliche or that stereotype. Uh, 
I do want to say that I'm, I'm going to make a, a very gender normative statement here. I know I'm doing that. I'm painting a broad brush. But in our society, um, men and women are often raised differently when it comes to talking about feelings or even having feelings. So whatever gender you identify with, if you were raised to think that feelings are either unnecessary or dangerous or shameful, it might be really hard to access those feelings. And your therapist might work with you about how, how, how do you feel? So you might actually hear this question, but it's not necessarily the focus. It, if you are a very cognitive processor and cognitive decision maker, a good therapist will help you be an even better cognitive decision maker. But also a good therapist is, is likely going to, at some point or points in your relationship, challenge you to feel, challenge you to accept your own feelings. So while it's not that stereotypical lie on a couch and, and just get all touchy-feely and, and, um, and mushy, uh, I think it's just important to, to recognize the balance between your head and your heart. And that comes up a lot in therapy. And, and research is really um, expanding our idea of the amount of information that our emotions hold. There's a ton of information that when you pay attention to your emotions, your brain is able to get about a situation or a relationship. Um, and, and we're just really realizing how important that is. Yes, yes. The counselor will give me specific advice, tell me what to do or solve my problem. Come on, make it easy for us, guys. <laughs> just fix it for us. Call Renee, you? call Renee and she'll solve your problem. <laughs> I wish. That's such a good point. Yes, it makes a lot of sense that if you're coming to a therapist, you're coming because you're facing a challenge that you can't figure out yourself or that you're not confident about. So of course you want advice and you want a solution. We get that. Um, we just don't we just don't want to impose our perspective or our advice or our solution onto your problem. So we're going to avoid providing that. Um, that's maybe a bit of a difference between your therapeutic relationship and your friends. A lot of friends don't have a problem offering advice or, 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 or partners who want to be Mr. or Mrs. Fix-It. Um, those all have their places. Therapists are probably going to avoid doing that. That might feel cruel, or that might feel um, dismissive, I suppose, or just not, come on, you know, fix me, help me here. Uh, but the point is that a good therapist is, is seeking to help you find your own conclusions. So they might say things like, I wonder what would happen if, or how would it be different if, um, or how could you make it different? They're going to be careful not to say, here's what you should do. First, do this, then do this, then do this. I suppose there may be times when I have said, I think in this case, you might want to think about X. But those are very few and far between. Uh, again, it's about you learning to listen to yourself, to your feelings, and 
and go with what is the right solution for you, your family, your marriage, your whatever it is. Yeah, Dave, yes. I was just going to add, it's, it's more about learning the skills to make decisions um, and feel how, you know, figuring out how we feel about those than it is right. in making that decision. And we're also, as humans, much more likely to stick with a um, solution that we come up with ourselves rather than, right. Yeah. Well, we yeah, know that, that with our kids, right? Right. <laughs> well, well, true. <laughs> um, yeah, that's perfect. I think it's kind of, they're almost like a, a guide to help you make a decision. Someone says, as Oprah says, you know, you help us find those aha moments when things click. I love those, love those moments. Yeah. Yeah. Lottie, yeah. do you want to talk about what to expect? Sure. So as we've talked about uh, for the last several, you know, as we've been, as long as we've been talking here, it is really important to find a good fit. It, I think it's the most important thing. So talking to several therapists is really essential. Even if you talk to the first therapist and you think, oh, I, I, I feel pretty good about this. S still go ahead and talk to a couple others. Um, th there's just really a lot of benefit in that. And the third person might check a box that you didn't even know you had that the first person didn't. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts about what kind of questions you think you'd want to ask a therapist when you were, uh, when you're first reaching out to them. Um, so I'm going to give you guys just a minute to maybe give us some feedback on that. Yeah. What questions do you think you'd want to ask a therapist as you're um, sort of interviewing them? While people are putting stuff in the chat, will you guys mention maybe two or three different approaches that therapists take? Sure. Um, yeah. So we've talked about that. One of the questions I get a lot from folks is, is something around that. What kind, what's your theoretical approach? Um, it's, that's a hard question to answer sometimes because with, after doing this for 25 years, it's sort of like, uh, it's a very eclectic approach, but I personally am a pretty cognitive behavioral therapist. And what that means is that I refer pretty often to um, cho choices and consequences, um, making the right thing easy and the wrong thing difficult. So if someone is, let's say, trying to stop smoking, one of the things that you know, I might, we might talk about is, um, you know, you always have to go outside to smoke, even in your house when you don't, you don't mind the smell of smoke in your home, you always have to go outside. And in order to go outside, uh, I live in a, you know, if I live in an apartment, I have to put on my coat and I have to go downstairs and I have to go 45 feet away from the entrance to the building and stand in this spot just to make, sort of make the behavior less comfortable. So there's a whole bunch of other things that kind of go along with um, cognitive behavioral, it's called CBT, but it's one of the approaches that really is very um, rational and makes a lot of sense to people when they think about it. So, um, and, it, and it's really applicable for a lot of different situations. However, uh, there is sort of a, a myth is that someone who has a cognitive behavioral approach is very sort of black and white, you do this and then this. Um, and if you do this, this will happen. And it's 
certainly not like that. Again, because most of the success in therapy is going to come from the relationship that the person has with the therapist. The, the, the like therapeutic approach is much less important or the okay. interventions or techniques that the therapist okay. use much less important. That's good. Okay. Yeah. Here are some of the questions. If you don't, I'll throw these out or people, sure. what people think they would want to know, do their beliefs align with mine? I'd want to know if they have experience working with foster parents and then mine, do you assign homework? And when do you follow up? Um, are they TBRI trained? Mm-hmm. How important Absolutely. is it that their beliefs align with ours? And are they going to tell us their beliefs? Right. Well, that's, I was, my follow-up question to that would be um, what beliefs in particular are we talking about um, maybe like religious beliefs or um, other? Yeah. I'd be curious to hear more about that, but that certainly is an interesting question. Some therapists do assign homework, but in my experience um, with really busy families, it's just another opportunity to not get something done and then kind of feel bad about it. <laughs> so it has to be, uh, Dave, it's, Dave, I think you have a different, little different perspective on that, but it's something I talk with my, my clients about uh, to make sure that that's not the road we're going down. What I more often do is there might be a, you know, sort of a suggestion about trying a new behavior or see practicing something and seeing how it works. Can I spend five minutes a day meditating? And then maybe halfway through the week, I text and say, how are you doing on your meditating every day? Uh, So homework is not, it it certainly is not something to, um, that, that needs to be followed and kind of structured for most people. Some people really need that and like that. But that's one thing I would um, say to a client, if that's something that's really important to you, I'm probably not the best therapist for you because I don't like homework and I don't, I'm not so good on following up on whether or not you did it. Dave, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. I think for the most part, I agree. And I'm glad you pointed out that for some people having that structure, having that accountability is very helpful. Mm-hmm. It depends on what the client is, it depends on the client's personal style. It also depends on what, what are we working on here? Because uh, some, some challenges might benefit more than other challenges with that accountability. I'm thinking maybe about substance use. Uh, accountability might be more helpful than grief work. Right. Uh, I usually personally frame any homework I give as invitations. Uh, I I rarely personally hand out a worksheet and say, here, fill this out. Um, Sometimes I'll propose a journaling prompt. More often than not, when I, my feeling about homework is that it is very helpful if the client is invested in the hard work that happens in between the sessions. Uh, You know, I I get to see my clients one hour a week or one hour every two weeks. They live with themselves 24 seven. And the real work of therapy, um, I wanna be careful how I say this, but it's it's often very helpful to, to be thinking about 
what you and your therapist have been talking about. And sometimes that's the extent of the homework is just, hey, observe how you're feeling about this or see if you can tune into what your body feels like when your child spits yeah. in your face or yeah, whatever happened. To me, that's homework, but it's not, I'm going to grade this and then I'm going to judge you for whether or right. not you were invested enough to give this sheet back to me. Yeah, I like that invitation component because then it doesn't feel so like pressured that you have to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. Awesome. And any, let me just add really quickly, any change that clients are contemplating making a lot of times it can be the, you know, sort of excitement about, I want to try this new thing. And what I try to do a lot is to kind of temper that let's try one teeny little new thing at a time because even with excitement that eventually those kinds of large changes are, we're going to revert back to what we were doing. So I talk with my clients a lot about make this, make any change you're going to make so small that it would be ridiculous not to do it. (laughs) If it's something like I'm working on my relationship with my spouse, so I'm just going to say please and thank you more. It like, it's ridiculous not to try that for right. a week and Baby see how steps, it goes. doable steps. Absolutely. And that awesome. helps prevent discouragement and, you know, makes a success mindset in many ways. So most therapists will have an intake questionnaire and there are legal uh, documents that every therapist has to provide to a client. It, there's this a very interesting document that Colorado has that no other state I've ever worked in has. Um, this mandatory disclosure statement, which includes all the laws for all therapists and psychologists and psychiatrists and social workers listed. You can't just say, this is, I'm a therapist. These are the laws according to me. So you'll get this long document um, and it's just Colorado law. Um, One of the most important documents that is going to be in there is going to be an informed consent document. And that basically is going to go over um, sort of the the things that it's important for you to understand as you're going into a a pretty intimate relationship with a counselor, Uh, what the expectations are, what the boundaries are. And that's a really good document for a therapist and a client to review pretty early on the mandatory disclosure statement actually has to be gone over with a therapist before uh, counseling can even start. So it's always done real early in the um, process. Um, Yeah, so the intake questionnaire probably has some questions about your background, childhood, all that good stuff. a client always has the option to complete or not complete whatever they don't want to. Um, Because again, a lot of that information will kind of come up as a part of having a good relationship with with your client or with your therapist. Many therapists do ask for goals and timelines. um, And if those are not clear, it's absolutely okay to say, we'll talk about this. not all the questions on the paperwork have to be completed. That's good to know. Cause there are, yeah, yeah, there, when I I did a better health intake just to kind of, you know, see what it was like. And yeah, there were maybe 
eight questions, six to eight questions that they just, you can write a little few sentences about. I don't remember yeah. if Foles was one, but now I know if it was that I could, I probably made something up. Right. But I, right. now I know I could just been, have been like, not sure. Right. And if you are, um, if you, if you are asked to provide some goals, those are definitely considered living documents. You know, that the, the questionnaire is a living document. Those can be changed at any time and timelines can be changed if they are sort of required. I'm, I'm not 100% sure what the paperwork for BetterHelp looks like, uh, Renee. And I don't know if they would flag a questionnaire if someone didn't complete a um, particular question. No, if but, I remember right, they weren't required. Okay. Yeah. Good. Good. But yeah. Go on. Can I just step back and, and just point out uh, how important it is to check in with yourself when you're on the phone with a new therapist, when you're interviewing therapists, pay attention to how you feel. Uh, that might sound obvious, but I think it's also easy to dismiss a kind of a a gut feeling or a, or a, or a reaction to, um, to an interaction. You know, I'm, I'm not suggesting judge them because, well, I don't like their voice. Although or because I'm they, stressed about making the first phone call to a therapist, right? <laughs> right. That is a stressful thing to do. It, it is. It is stressful. And that's why it's important to just pay attention to, do I feel heard? Do I feel validated? Do I, do I feel rushed? Do I feel, do I hear that person typing in the background or noise in the background that makes me feel like I'm not being prioritized or, you know, do, do I feel, how does my body feel? Do I feel more tense than when the, when the conversation started or less tense when the conversation, you know, 10 minutes into the conversation, but just an invitation to really see an invitation, not homework, an invitation. <laughs> Feel, to, to pay attention to how you feel. Sure, yeah. Um, but again, interview several therapists, it's a good idea. All right, so um, as I'm speaking about the first session, I, I think I should add that this is not everybody's first session. This is sort of a general idea of what a first session may look like. Um, some people do it much, probably somewhat differently than this. Um, but at the first session, there is going to be a review of the documents that were sent that we legally are required to review. Um, and then a review of the history or information that was provided on the intake questionnaire. And one thing I tell folks, um, even if they're coming to into the um, session, in a pretty stressed state. And, and let me normalize that as we were just talking about, calling a therapist can be really stressful. Not sure what to expect. You're calling a stranger, you're calling to ask for them to help you with something that is you know, pretty vulnerable. Um, so that acknowledging that that is a stressful uh, activity to it, even a decision to make to, to decide to do. Um, and then the first session is, is going to be a little bit, probably feel a little bit odd, awkward, um, because same reasons. So um, going into it, knowing that, and having sometimes having paperwork to sort of focus on and go through, and let's just 
review these questions helps to put uh, someone at ease. You feel a little bit less on the spot. So at some point, the therapist is probably going to say, what made you reach out for counseling today or this, this week? And try to gather a little bit inform more information about what's going on in your life currently. So the next one, set goals. Some therapists do this in the first session, some don't. Um, but getting, it's mostly about getting an idea of what would you, how would you like your life to be different when you're done? when we're done talking, when you, when, how will we know that I'm helping or that working together is being helpful for you? So it doesn't necessarily have to be a goal, but it's, it can be a, um, it's just sort of an idea of what progress will look like and or feel like so that both of us can at some point go, Hey, we've been working together for two months and it seems like your stress hasn't really changed or um, your situation, you haven't felt uh, ready to make changes that you wanted to make. It is possible that this relationship is not the best relationship. So what, what can, can we either change what we're working on or do we need to talk about, um, you know, looking for helping you find someone else who can work with you a little bit better? Yeah, let's talk about that for a minute, because my aunt swears that her therapist fired her because he said, listen, we have hashed this to death 50 million times and you are still bringing it up and we're done. Wow. <laughs> does that happen? <laughs> it, well, I, it does not happen. It, it might that was her that, version, so that may be right. a little exaggerated. And, and we have to be careful that it does not come across like that, because it can feel a little bit... Um, sort of like you're breaking up with me or something, but it has to be an honest conversation. And it's a great model for what all of our relationships should include. Hey, we have this, you know, we've been looking at this thing for quite a while and neither one of us is figuring out how to, how to make this move forward. Um, maybe we're just not the best fit. And it doesn't mean that I don't really like and respect you or that you don't like and respect me. It's just maybe our working relationship. We just haven't figured it out or we don't have what it takes to, to move in the direction that you want to move. If we could all look at changes in relationships with a little bit more of that um, outlook, it's a lot less personal and a lot less hurtful or it can be. So it's a great way to sort of practice. I'm not getting what I need. And, and I don't ever suggest call, you know, being on the phone or in a session and going like, okay, this is going to be the last session. It's, it's a process of let's bring this up. Let's kind of talk about it. Um, let's think about it. Let's come back and talk about it a little more. Now, what do you think? How are you feeling about this possible change? How can I help? Um, and sometimes even that conversation is that conversation is enough to sort of spark things moving a little bit more. Okay, awesome. That was helpful. Dave, do you have anything you want to add to that? Uh, just real quickly, I would just reiterate, I think that um, a part of the therapeutic relationship, I believe, ought to be regular check-ins. How are we doing? How are you feeling Absolutely. about this relationship? I actually talk a lot about the relationship because as Lottie has said, it's a fantastic, um, safe, 
hopefully it feels safe opportunity to practice relationship skills um, and practice communication within a relationship in a very different way. So some of my clients have this look like, you're asking me how I feel about you, but I'm doing it very intentionally to, to make sure that we together are prioritizing what's right in this relationship or what's right for the client and how to, how to make it productive. And another real benefit of that uh, is that it helps if, when people are able to recognize that relationships feel really close and then maybe they don't feel so close and then they feel fine and then they feel really close and that that's really normal in relationships. And just because today I'm just not really figure, I'm not really feeling so close to you, that doesn't mean this relationship needs to end. It might mean we need to talk about that, but there, there is a an opportunity to experience sort of the ebb and flow of natural relation that naturally happen in relationships and to start to feel a little more secure in that happening. And, and I'm sorry, I can't help but, but also just mention, this is something that happens in a, in a therapeutic relationship. And it's also something that happens so frequently in a parenting role. It's called rupture and repair. Mm -hmm. Relationships are built Healthy relationships are built to withstand ruptures. And it's important. I love it when a client comes to me and says, actually, something you said last week really pissed me off. Yeah. Because that's an opportunity for me to repair or for us to repair our relationship. And nine times out of 10, if not more, uh, the relationship is stronger afterwards. Stronger, for sure. I would propose mm. that that is really relatable in a parenting role with a parent and a child or, or even siblings siblings might be hard to to wrangle that sometimes but a rupture in a relationship does not signify the end of a relationship it signifies an opportunity to deepen it okay awesome often great all right let's move on so we can see how much we can still cover i know are we running out of time renee no not yet but i, I know okay. we have a lot to cover okay okay this is another time of, we just want to give everyone opportunity to to share how do you think therapy might be beneficial. You know, everyone's therapy looks different. There's lots of different ways and we've touched on a lot of them, uh, but we want to invite, you know, how is therapy helping or how do you think it could help you or your family? We'll just, we'll just pause for a minute, Renee, and just give people a moment to, to answer that if you'd like. Sure. I think for me, it helps me feel, I don't know if stable is the right word, but like more even keeled regularly instead of dramatic ups and downs. Someone says, can you repeat the question? The question is, how do you think therapy is or might be able to benefit you and your family? Provide tools to better handle difficult situations. Help me manage new skills, strategies, strong feelings, frustrations. Absolutely. Fantastic. I mean, foster parenting 101, right? Strong feelings and frustrations right there. Right, right. Okay, well, um, please keep keep sharing if you'd like. I just want to list some, um, some kind of ways to think about what, what do we need? What do I need? What does my family need right now out of some kind of supportive professional relationship? It could be parent coaching. I'm having this particular challenge with 
X. Let's brainstorm solutions or ways to navigate X. Navigating your frustration and confusion with the foster care system. It's not a straightforward, always easy, always supportive system. It's okay to come to a therapist and say, oh my God, my caseworker or my GAL or the county or the system, and just be able to have that place to navigate that. I mentioned before, it's really common and really understandable how your role as a parent, whether of a biological child or a foster or an adoptive child, brings up stuff, brings up things that have been suppressed or partially digested or, or just um, surprises you that, oh, I guess I'm still, I'm still chewing on this. Therapy can be a place to process that. Therapy can be a place to work on your relationship with your partner. There are, I think, very few things that are as good at highlighting differences and highlighting challenges than parenting uh, because you're two different people. And if you, if you are partnered and you're co-parenting with someone, you're not always going to be exactly on the same page. So sometimes therapy is about how do we work together in this aspect of our partnership? Lottie and Renee have both talked about, and I will, I will add my, my vote to, yeah, parenting is stressful. Foster parenting is, is, can be anxiety provoking. Um, how great if you, if you had a place to manage these emotions and the others that come up related to foster parenting. It's also important, I think, to recognize here, and, and we might say it again, that you are more than a foster parent. You are a, a complex individual. You have lots of roles in your life. You might be a sibling. You might be a child of a living parent. You're an employee or an employer. Um, you're the left fielder on your softball team, whatever it is. Anxiety and stress can come from all those different roles. So feel free to, to, to find the therapist to talk about anxiety and stress and other emotions that aren't exactly related to or caused by your role as a parent. Sometimes it's just, sometimes your goal, and I think someone mentioned this, your goal is to have your emotions and experiences validated. Perfectly reasonable and valid goal. See, I just validated you. Um, <laughs> that's something that we need and something that is, is, a, is a good reason to seek out support. And that we're learning is even more essential than we've previously thought. If this is an important one. It's it's hard to vent or have a confidential conversation with a caseworker or with a GAL. They're on your team, but maybe you don't feel comfortable that you can say whatever you need to say without it somehow being noted in the record. Therapy is a great place to do that venting. Someone mentioned this, learning practical self-regulation skills, tools, um, Maintaining your ability to stay regulated, to keep your body and your mind regulated is essential. And I think we'll talk just a bit more about that uh, in, in just a moment. And I mentioned the word accountability earlier. If you do have goals or if you have specific challenges or behaviors that you're trying to change, 
one way to use therapy is as that accountability buddy, as someone to keep you on track. Hey, last week we talked about this. How have you been experiencing that? Or have you seen any change in that? Have you experimented with the, with the behaviors that we talked about? Great way to use therapy. And speaking of using therapy. <laughs> yeah, I was just reviewing this. I think we've talked about quite a few of these things. Okay. Um, but in terms of getting the most out of your work with your therapist, really considering what the best options for communicating are going to be for you. Is it a combination of things, texting and a once a week um, in-person meeting, um, but also finding a therapist who has the ability to provide those different kinds, whatever it is that you feel would be best for you. Um, and yeah, so reviewing your progress and assessing your relationship with your therapist. If you haven't heard by now, the relationship is the most important part. So really considering, am I, um, am I still feeling comfortable? Am I feeling a little stuck? And if so, uh, what can I, what can I do about it with my, with my therapist? Again, practicing having on honest conversations about sensitive topics like that. So if you're not meeting in person, it's really important to find a quiet private time and place where you won't be distracted so that you can really experience uh, the benefits and all the nuances that come with meeting with a therapist. Um, turn off your Alexa. <laughs> this is something I found out just, I don't know, maybe a month ago, um, somebody was talking about something and they're all of a sudden their Alexa turned on and then I started thinking about like, like is Alexa listening to these like private conversations? Um, so I kind of remind folks to do that now. Um, but also pra uh, practicing the, the logging on and, and, and using the platform, whatever platform it is that you end up using to connect with your therapist. Make sure that you practice that ahead of time. Um, Renee, I think you mentioned there was someone you were working with and there were so many problems with the connectivity that it really uh, interfered. Yeah. Anybody who's under better help, let me know if that happened to you. Um, we just, our two computers did not sync well and it was very glitchy and that was tough. That didn't work. Yes. I, I have had that problem as well, much more frequently early on in the whole pandemic situation. Um, but it is something that might come up and I always have a backup plan for that. If the video is not working, but the phone is working, we might do video and phone so that the conversation doesn't drop off, even if the video drops off. Um, but that, that is a real you know, real thing to worry about these days, it's really good to practice and kind of check those things out beforehand. And yeah, oh yeah, think about the confidentiality of any devices you're using and your location. If you're meeting in a library or something, if that's the only place that you can find some time and space, just being aware of where you are and protecting your information and your, your you know, putting boundaries around that. Would a therapist ever, if I were to say like, hey, can we just go into my personal Zoom room? Do, would they do that? Or does it have to be that HIPAA thing you mentioned earlier? Ideally, it's going to be the HIPAA thing I mentioned earlier. Um, there are folks that um, 
are fine with not having it have to go that direction. But that is something that the therapist would need to have in writing. Um, so a lot of therapists have added um, telehealth disclosure forms to their paperwork. I uh, probably should have mentioned that earlier. And in that form, it will talk about um, the limits of confidentiality and you know, any kind of text, email, any sort of electronic uh, transmission of information to me feels a little bit sort of different than having an in-person session where I can control the information uh, in a way that feels really comfortable for me. So that's been a part of the whole changeover process that's been a little uncomfortable for me personally is because I take my client's private information extremely seriously. So I don't even like electronic documents, but it's a, it's a world I'm having to start to, to navigate. Um, Dave is much better at it than I am. Um, but yeah, I think it's just a matter of getting a, a disclosure and, and uh, some permission from the client. I, I just want to acknowledge sort of the ironic humor of the first point here. And I'm imagining that some of you are saying, you know, if I could find a quiet private place, I wouldn't need therapy. Uh, as a parent, that's not always easy to do. I've invited my clients to go out to your car and mm -hmm. call me your video from there. Uh, do it during school hours. COVID threw another wrench in that because everyone's always at home, or at least at the beginning of, the, <clears throat> of this pandemic, we were all at home. We were working from home. It was hard to find place to do this. I've got yeah. I've had clients um, join a video session from inside their closet with two doors between them and the family. Uh, so I just want to acknowledge that that, that is difficult in, uh, in the, these days. It is difficult, but it does help to try to, again, put some boundaries around that space, that this is what Dave and I consider to be essential self-care. Self-care is absolutely essential for foster parents. I don't think it's negotiable and I think it should be a part of a contract. I will engage in self-care because I think it's the most important thing in terms of um, really being able to be really effective with kids who've experienced trauma. Um, and so figuring out a way to make this time assign the value that it deserves, assign uh, and, and put boundaries around it that really give it the respect that it deserves. Yeah, yeah. So I wanna just take a moment to, to reiterate, <laughs> most of this I believe we've covered, uh, but why is your mental health so important in your role as a parent, let alone in, in your life? But focusing on your role as a parent Let's all acknowledge parenting is hard and foster parenting is a special kind of hard. Because you are dealing with children by definition who have experienced trauma, there are, um, they have special needs uh, that you then need to be available for mentally. And those special needs can sometimes tax your mental health even more so than I don't know what other we don't know what other word to use typical in quotes yeah we usually Some say neuro, neurotypical neurotypical child right. and I think that's so important because with the with children from trauma how does their trauma present 
as behavior. So they have poor, bad behaviors. It's our fault because we're not parenting them correctly. That's what we're telling ourselves yeah. when really it's not behavior, quote unquote, at all. It's a child attempting to process his or her trauma. Now, try explaining that to the teacher, right. um, you know, and that's why he's walking. This is my personal experience. He's walking around the back of the classroom or he, you know, he won't sit down. Um, he's trying to regulate his body, but this poor woman has 25 other kids in her classroom and does not have time for that. Um, so I, it, it's hard. Thank you for, thank you for validating Dave. Yeah. <laughs> so their needs, as I just mentioned, can put a unique strain on you, on your physical health, your mental health, your relationships, your profession, your, you know, your professional needs. And it's, it's important, I think we've sort of hammered on this already, that because of the uniqueness of foster parenting, seeking therapy is in no way indicative that you're a bad parent. Uh, it's, it's easy to fool ourselves or to convince ourselves that I'm somehow to blame for this behavior, like, like Renee just said. Seeking therapy is not an indication that you have failed in any way. If anything, it's exactly the opposite. It's an indication that you are dedicated to your success and your child's success, whatever success looks like. Uh, and so the more, the more you know about your child's brain and how your brain works, the better able you are to deal with that challenging behavior while staying in a, in, in a, in a as calm a body as possible. And the better your mental health, the more regulated you can be, the more effective you can be as a parent and in other areas of your life. So as Lottie said, self-care and mental health, it's not optional or, or prioritizing your, yourself is not selfish. It's not an, a luxury, it's a necessity. Um, so with that, we're, uh, Renee, how are we doing on time? We've got about 20, 25 minutes before we need to start wrapping up. Okay. Okay. Um, we want to talk about, as I said at the very beginning, sort of a top level of what's happening in the brain. Uh, but we thought it might be helpful and normalizing. If you're comfortable sharing in the chat, what kinds of seemingly unexplainable, unnecessary, or unhelpful behaviors have you seen from your kids? Is it walking around the back of the, of the classroom and getting that call during dinner time from the teacher? Is it throwing a tantrum in the checkout aisle? Is it finding feces in the living room? Uh, you're in a community now of people who, who are experiencing the same kinds of journey that, that you're on. So if you feel comfortable, it might just be validating, validating for all of us to, to share what you've experienced. Yeah, feel free to put things in the chat. I know for me as a new foster parent who didn't really understand sensory, I could not understand children eating ointment and eating lotion. And I, I remember telling the doctor, like, this is so weird. Like, why is he eating ointment? And, the, and I even had thought, oh, well, I can't give him gum. He's two. I didn't mention that. And the doctor said, 
give him gum. He needs oral input. <laughs> I, Thank was, goodness was, you had a doctor who recognized that, Renee. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. All right, let's go ahead and move on and I'll, I'll share if anything comes up in the day. Right. Hold okay. on one second. I had a teen who started a riot at school. And when I went to the school, she was okay, was talking to me, but flipped and threatened to kill me by stabbing me. Yeah, excellent. Yeah. Um, sucking on dishcloths. There we go oh, again yeah. with that oral input, right? Um, you're right. I love that you put on here, you can't make this stuff up because that's <laughs> how foster parenting sometimes feels. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I am assuming that most parents have been um, probably have more education on how the brain works than they ever thought they would these days, because I know that it's an important component in most of the trainings that folks are participating in. Um, but it is really essential to understanding uh What's go for, for understanding what's going on for them and what kinds of responses are going to be the most helpful in the moment uh, to help a child become more regulated and affect change over time by helping training their brain, rewiring their brain, so to speak. So um, the most, okay. So this is how I talk about it with my clients. So we have, you've probably heard about the amygdala and that's basically this part of your brain that is constantly going, you know, where's the threat, where's the threat. And when a child has experienced trauma early on, that amygdala becomes what I, we just call hyper, I call hypersensitive. So they are more hyper aware of possible threats in their environment. And this is not a, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? This is not something they're doing on purpose. They're, they don't even necessarily know that they're walk, sitting in a room waiting, you know, looking and scanning the room for all the things that could possibly cause them harm. Um, but that's what the amygdala does. I, there was an article I read a couple months ago called the brain is not for thinking. And I love that term because the amygdala and the early parts of our brain we're designed purely to keep our heart beating and to keep us alive and away from threats. It wasn't until we started having extra time on our hands that we needed this cortex to sort of direct us in more logical thinking. Up until that point, we were just about survival. And when a child has experienced trauma, they go back to that state where everything needs to be assessed for the threat that it will uh, that it might cause. Um, so when a when an amyg the amygdala is triggered, the a child doesn't necessarily know to say, "Hey, I just saw this shiny thing in the corner, and that reminded me of this mirror that that I remember from this memory I had a long time ago, and now I'm feeling really dysregulated, and I don't and and it's it's a memory I don't want to think about." Um, they they don't know to do that they most of the time don't even know that the shiny thing is tr triggering anything. So what we see instead are these behaviors that if we can look at them as communication, I, I am all of a sudden not feeling safe or something has reminded me of something 
um, and, and I'm not feeling safe. If we can look at it uh, from that point of view, then we, the response that we can choose to their behavior can include different things. And when they, um, so all, because we're social creatures, all of our behaviors are designed to sort of bring other people into our experience. So when a child is afraid, they do lots of behaviors and lots of nonverbal things that send the message to the world that, I, that they're afraid. Um, they might curl up into a little ball. They might, their eyes might be wide, their respiration increases. All of those things send messages to other people. I'm not feeling safe and the world is not safe. And they're designed to pull other people into their experience because once someone else experiences my experience with me, I am not as alone and I start to feel more comfortable. So my amygdala starts to settle down a little bit just by having people feel similarly to how I feel. So when I said earlier about validating people's experience, that is one of the best ways to affect immediate change in someone's amygdala. So what I mean by that is when a child starts acting in a certain way, one of the best things we can do is help them identify that feeling before we do anything else. Um, just to say, I'm wondering if you're feeling scared, so let's put this blanket around your shoulders. But to just say that part first, so it helps because it sends a message to the child's amygdala, you understand how I'm feeling, now I'm not alone, and now I can calm down just a little bit. If that doesn't make sense, or if you have any questions about that, please um, let me know, because I know I just spoke a lot of words. Well, and um, I would argue a lot of times when this, ha this happens to adults and we don't recognize it. Oh, absolutely. Right? It, 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 it absolutely is. It's, it's, a, it's great for all relationships because we, we, we don't even realize that we're doing it when we try to pull people into our experience most of the time. When I'm happy about something, I, you know, I sit up straight and my voice changes and my face changes. All of that is to communicate to you how I feel and to ask you to join me. Because once you join me, I'm not alone and I feel better, I feel safer. So it's great to do with other folks. And it's really good to do for ourselves as well. But Dave, I won't jump into Dave's part because he's gonna talk about that. Um, but when, whenever anyone asks me, what's something I can do differently today that will change an interaction, the way an interaction goes with someone who's experienced trauma and will um, create benefit that lasts longer than today, it is to just start to practice help saying the feeling that the person is having before you do anything else. Yeah. Did I get everything on here, Dave? You did, and I am somehow not able to forward the slide. There we go. There we go. Okay. But again, so please let me know if you have any questions or comments about what I was just saying. So your brain works, as Renee pointed out and Lottie just explained, your brain works exactly the same way. Uh, your, your amygdala still has, 
the adult amygdala still has the exact same function as the child's amygdala, keep you safe. And the reaction to a threat is going to be the same. Your behaviors might look different, but the physiological reaction is going to be identical. And in this particular case, if we're being honest, living with someone whose behavior seems unpredictable or aggressive, explosive, is, is interpreted by your amygdala as a threat. So it can leave you in near constant dysregulation in that threat response. You're acting then on your emotions, not on logic. And that's because your amygdala and other parts of your brain are keeping you in a near constant state of readiness because you're, you're living in a situation where your brain is telling your body you have to be prepared to respond to something that could be threatening. What does this do? It leads to hypervigilance. What does this do for you, the parent, in your brain and in your body? It leads to hypervigilance, always on alert. It's, you know, that amygdala is your smoke detector. And it's kind of like having a smoke detector that goes off every time there's steam in the shower. It's that hypervigilance, anxiety, depression, exhaustion. Let's not, let's not mince words. Parenting is exhausting and can be overwhelming. That's not just because, um, it's certainly not because you're doing something wrong or you're somehow not a good parent. It's because your brain is telling you, stay in overdrive, stay in, in, in threat response mode. Challenges, we're not as human beings evolutionarily designed to stay in that state for 10 years. We're designed to stay in it for 10 minutes to get away from the lion who's chasing us. Foster parenting is a marathon, so it can lead to that kind of chronic threat response. I'm painting a bleak picture. I don't mean to say that all foster parenting results in this, but just knowing what's going on in your brain is helpful. And Lottie spoke, I think, well about this, and it works equally important for you. Feeling isolated, and let's, let's agree, Foster parenting can sometimes feel really, really lonely. No one yeah. quite understands. You don't quite have the support that you feel you need and you feel isolated. And that isolation as social creatures, our brain interprets isolation itself as a threat. So now it's threat upon threat. So your amygdala is just gonna get more activated if you feel isolated. So, how do we address what's going on? I know we're running short on time, so we can go through this pretty quickly. And each one of these deserves a lot of conversation. Uh, but Lottie has talked about that emotion, the, the, the role emotions play in our threat response and in our safety. And the word contagion is maybe not quite as, uh, maybe is a little bit more alarming in the era of COVID, but our emotions are contagious. We contage each other with our emotions. That's why it's so important. The very first thing we will always suggest to a parent, or to, to any human really, in, in any kind of conflictual uh, situation is check in with yourself. Regulate your own emotions because if 
If you don't, you can't help co you can't help co-regulate the other person's emotions in a healthy way. You will inadvertently co-regulate them up and you'll just ratchet each other up. So emotional co-regulation is the, I believe, I think Lottie would, would agree is the first step in dealing with whatever's going on. Can I just say something here real quick, Dave? This is so hard. And if you think there's anyone doing this on the regular you would, you would be wrong. Um, it's kind of like telling someone with panic disorder, not to panic. Um, you know, when somebody's raging, just calm down. Um, very, very, very difficult. This is why I just wanted to plug real quick. The leader of the herd workshop that Dave and Lottie do teaches this exactly. And it will be life-changing for you. Um, so please, please, please consider it. It is the kind of thing, Renee, that feels, uh, it it feels very difficult. It's, it gets better with practice. And so with intentional practice, because it, it really is a matter of just sort of strengthening pathways in our brain so that, um, we associate stressful situations with relaxation. It's very much like addressing a panic attack and teaching someone how to manage panic attacks. Um, it, but it is a matter of kind of rewiring the brain. Yeah, yeah. To address what's going on in, in your brain and in your child's brain, I like the, the, the phrase maintenance and rescue. And let me explain that. If anyone is in, uh, has dealt with asthma in their life, then you likely, or, or has a child or a relative or a friend who has asthma, you might be aware that many asthmatics have a maintenance medication that is designed to reduce the odds of an asthma attack happening. And many also carry a rescue inhaler in case they happen to have an asthma attack, they need a quick way to open their lungs up. Dealing with a traumatized brain, yours or your child's, is similar. By maintenance medication or maintenance tools, you know, think about things like lifestyle choices and, and healthy hygiene, meaning the three big ones are sleep, exercise, and nutrition. I, in, this, in this scenario, we're, we're counting those as maintenance medications or maintenance techniques. Other things like mindfulness, um, journaling, creative expression like art, um, uh, Intense exercise can be a rescue. Is that what you're, have you moved on to the rescue? Are you, have you moved on to the rescue response? I'm sorry. Well, I was just going to do that, but. Right. Yeah. Intense exercise in the moment when something is going on can be one. Cold water. Yeah. Breathing cold water on your face. We, like I said, we could talk for a long time about those kinds of tools, but you know, it's helpful to begin building that toolbox of both preventative and reactive or responsive uh, tools. Um, I just wanna put a plug in for something that you may be aware of. And this, I would, I guess I would label this as maintenance or as as, um, setting the groundwork, is focusing on the relationship. It's just like the therapeutic relationship, the parent-child relationship um, being able to attune to the feelings behind the behavior is, is a critical maintenance 
uh, critical preventative. Will it prevent everything? Absolutely not, but it's still critical. And the parenting tree is, is, is for me, it's a nice sort of visual. And what I've, what this visual is, is the picture, the roots of the tree are the relationship. Then the trunk of the tree is the structure and skill teaching. The top of the tree, the part that society pays the most attention to, the pretty leaves, are the discipline and correction, the responses to the behavior. But really, the power of the tree and the work comes from the roots and the trunk, from the relationship, the structure, and the skill building, both your skill building and teaching skills to, uh, to the child. You might have caught Lottie said this phrase, and it's and it's something we talk a lot about, both in in therapy and, and also in our equine assisted work, um, making the right thing easy. If we want someone to follow our lead, it's a com incumbent upon us to make it easy to do so, to eliminate distractions, to um, see the distractions from that person's perspective so that we can make it easy to follow our lead instead of uh, whatever is distracting. And that could be something external or something internal. Structure, consistency, and predictability are some of the ways to make it easy to do the right thing. And by right thing, I mean whatever you and your family's values are, whatever you have decided are the boundaries or are the... Um, preferred behaviors in a given situation. Um, yeah, so I just noticed we're getting low on time, Dave. So I'm just yeah. gonna go through these kind of quickly because we've talked about most of these. Um, addressing the feelings before the behavior, we talked about that. Um, and, and again, acknowledging and, and validating the emotions in yourself and your partner and your child is going to act to soothe the amygdala to get that process started. Self-care, self-regulation. Um, I think it ought to be in the contract to become a foster, foster parent, as I mentioned. I don't think it's optional to engage in really um, uh, frequent self-care. So teach, teach the child, your ch children and practice with them self-care and self-regulation in times when they're not in crisis or there's not uh, dysregulation occurring. And yeah, teach, teaching emotional vocabulary. The other, the other thing is a lot of times kids, it, and it's not um, on purpose, but when their amygdala is stimulated, um, they don't, or, or when their body is very stimulated, they don't necessarily, their brain just doesn't necessarily know the difference between good stimulation and bad hyperstimulation early on in their lives, especially kids who've experienced trauma. So a lot of times we'll have kids who are, let's say, really excited at the park and they're so happy and they're running around and they're having the greatest time. And then even if you give them 15 minute warning and then a 10 minute warning and a five minute warning that it's gonna be time to go, when it's time to go, there's a, you know, a huge emotional um, outburst because all that excitement is still dysregulated emotions and it can quickly go to now I'm sad and now I'm really sad and it's a huge thing. So helping in that situation, 
helping a child understand I'm really, really excited, right? Like you're so excited and then helping sort of de um, re-regulate them a little bit before moving on to the next thing can sometimes um, moderate that their reactions. Um, yeah, so we have a couple resources that we really like. Uh, I think every person on the planet should read The Body Keeps the Score. It's, an, it's a really good book. And The Whole Brain Child is an excellent book for understanding the way uh, children's brains are reacting to their environment. Foster Source um, offers, obviously, offers therapeutic services, um, along with the learning program that we offer at Groundwork Ranch, which I'm going to tell you a little bit about, I think, right now, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jody, Jody, would you mind putting all the links in the chat one more time? Yeah. Go ahead, And before we... Yeah, just... Oh, sorry. Wait, yeah, go ahead. Let me just, let me just also say it's virtually impossible to narrow down the universe of self-help parenting books, blogs, websites, uh, workshops. So these are two, we just wanted to keep it really simple, but I just wanted to state the obvious that there are so many different resources and I'm sure that all of you could share with the rest of us one or two or 20 that you've consulted that you have found helpful. Okay, so leader of the herd. Uh, this is our little shameless plug. Uh, we work with horses. It's a five hour uh, workshop. We use equine assisted learning and we use it as an adjunct to what you learn in the classroom. So you're not coming there for us to tell you, um, you know, sort of recite off all the really good ideas for working with kiddos. What we do is talk about um, how to put those into action with horses because the way horses perceive the world because they're prey animals, um, they see the world in a way that's really similar to how folks who've experienced trauma perceive the world. So when you come there, we, you get a chance to work hands-on with horses who are going to be in what we call survival mode, which is that constantly sort of scanning the environment for risks and dangers. Um, and you learn how to work with them and get them through difficult challenges while um, keeping them calm and keeping yourself calm. So you get to actually, it sounds, it can sound a little strange, like why is working with horses like working with kiddos? But it's pretty much the exact same behaviors that you take after practicing for five hours with us or four hours. Um, they're literally the same skills you can take and not haltering or anything, you're not gonna halter your kids, but the same um, uh, interactive skills, you can take them and apply them with, with kids. Um, let's see, hands-on and interactive. You, we also make sure that you have lots of opportunities to interact with other foster parents while you're there. Um, and you do not have to have any horse experience. You do not have to like horses. We do not ride horses. Uh, pretty much the only thing you do, need to do is dress appropriately for the weather and wear shoes that aren't where you, we can't see your toes. And remind us, we have this fantastic partnership with this local cafe that caters lunch. Yes. So that's one of the, the 
most wonderful things that's been added over the last six months, Off Campus Cafe, which is located in Louisville. They're huge supporters of foster care and foster parents. And they bring sandwiches and chips and drinks and all that good stuff for lunch so that parents have 45 minutes to an hour, kind of depending on how things are going, to gather together, talk about what's going on um, at the workshop and in their lives and eat yummy food at the same time. They're, they're a great organization and extremely helpful. Yeah. And I wanna also just introduce uh, another program we have that is uh, in conjunction with a wonderful organization named Cobbled Streets. Uh, and, and we've developed it with, with Foster Sources input and support. Uh, this is for teens ages 13 and 18 who are in foster care. We have in the past offered this as a one-time workshop or a multi-week program. You know, uh, the, the teens come for two hours a day, once a day for four weeks. Um, all the activities are equine assisted. Like Lottie said, there's no writing involved. It's all on the ground. Don't, the, the teens don't have to have uh, horse experience. In fact, some of the teens who have come to the ranch have never seen a horse up close. And that's fantastic because it gives them a lot of hands-on opportunities in a very trauma-informed, safe environment uh, to practice self-regulation skills, um, things about relational skills, uh, inter and intrapersonal co regulation and co-regulation and the kinds of things that lead to maintained placements or um, a, a, a more um, healthy reunification from the child's perspective. So we're, we're very passionate about this program as well. And if you have any questions about it, you can, um, this particular program, you can contact me directly and there's my email address. Uh, right. One thing I, I probably should have mentioned is that if you're interested in therapy through Foster Source, please go to, to get in touch with Foster Source. Um, and if you're interested in the leader of the herd program for foster parents, that also is contact uh, Foster Source at the link that was provided and that I think we put in the chat down there. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you guys so much for joining us this morning. I feel like we did a lot of talking at you. If you have any questions, we're gonna stick around for a few minutes and we're happy to address any questions or just talk about talk about stuff if you'd like. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dave and Lottie.